Welcome to the Sonoma Collective Podcast. We are a faith family practicing the way of Jesus together in beautiful Sonoma, California. If you'd like to learn more about Sonoma Collective, its ministries, or how you can support us financially, visit sonomacollective.com. So if I asked you a question, what's the biggest problem that humanity is facing today? This is probably a few things that pop in your head. Uh, maybe access to clean water, um, food insecurity, perhaps, uh, pandemics after this last season, perhaps, uh, maybe nuclear war, uh, climate change, environmental issues, education, poverty, perhaps. These maybe some of the things that pop to the, the surface. You know, and most of those, if you think about them, are, are basic needs, right? We, we need clothing, we need food, water, obviously, shelter. These are the basic things just for survival. But Obviously, none of us, uh, if, if asked, are, are just looking to survive, right? We want to live a flourishing life. We want to live the abundant life, the fulfilled life that Jesus says he, he came actually to give us. And so we think beyond just that, and we think of human flourishing, uh, we start to think, well, there's other issues that are in the, in the way of that, right? I mean, you know, we, we could easily go to political polarization, right? The, just the, the divide in our, in our culture here in the, in the West. Uh, immigration issues, right? Gender uh, identity issues, religious freedom, um, marriage, the breakdown of family. I mean, we could say that these are all also things that are not uh, allowing us to live that flourishing life that uh, we think we should be living. In uh, one word often gets sort of trotted out to explain all these things. And if you've been to any of our gatherings last year, you've probably heard me say this word, at least in every other sermon um, in the last year or so. Uh, so if you say, well, gender ideology, what's the problem? Well, it's secularism or is it rising loneliness or anxiety? Well, we can blame secularism for that. If it's media bias, again, secularism often gets thrown out there. And then breakdown of family, secularism again. But what exactly is this? And it's, look, it's, it's without question that we live in a secular age. There's no doubt about that. We, we don't need to even try to argue that. But um, this affects people's hearts in very different ways. Um, it's, it's more than what most people think. I mean, it doesn't make you just go out and go on an all-night bender, right? It doesn't just force you to go out and, and have an affair. Uh, it's not going to have you and it just deconstruct your faith alone. It's, it's much more subtle than that, right? way more subtle than that. Ultimately, what secularism does is it disciples us to learn to live without God, right? Secularism is, is, is and I use that word intentionally, it disciples us to learn to live without God. Right? It's an ideology, and its desires is to remove God from everything. Um, James K. Smith describes it this way. Uh, secularism is a way of constructing, constructing meaning and significance without any reference to the divine or the transcendent. Just to completely to remove any kind of divine or transcendent aspect, any kind of God or deity. Uh, it makes me think, uh, actually, the movie that some of you in, uh, in this uh, gathering are familiar with, The Exorcist. Anybody remember that movie? <laughs> Such a great movie. Uh, um, you know, put Linda Blair on the map, I guess. Um, another way to think of secularism is it's basically doing a reverse exorcism. Okay. All right. If you think about, right, anytime that Jesus encountered the demonic, what did he do? He drove it out. He completely removed it, right? Well, if you think about the opposite of that, that's what secularism is trying to do. It's whenever it encounters Christ, it's trying to drive it out. Say, no, Jesus, we can't have you here. We can't have you in the public square. We can't have you in the classroom. We can't have you in even the bedroom anymore. Sorry, we got to remove you. So secularism is doing kind of the opposite of what Jesus did when he wrote, when he encountered the demonic. It's trying to remove him from all things in our culture and our lives. 
Um, and this is obviously a problem. This is, you know, we, we think about the word godless, right? If you think about it in the past, that word has been used a lot before. Like that in, in past generations, that means you didn't have any morals, right? You, you lacked virtue, right? It, it meant that, or maybe, you know, if you were godless, you had a particular sin that just drove you off the edge, uh, you know, without care of the consequences, whether it be drugs or sex or any of those kind of vices or violence. But in our modern age, to be godless is not characterized by a particular sin uh, anymore. It's more about building an identity and a reality around which there's no reference to God. That's what it ultimately means. It's without God, God less, right? Just to remove him completely from our culture. And ultimately what it does, it views the self, the person, yourself as sovereign. Right? You put yourself in the place now of the divine or the transcendent. Um, and ultimately then it gives you this blank canvas, right? The, where you can just create whatever kind of authentic life you want to live. So if, we, if, if I'm sovereign, if you're sovereign, if you're in control, ultimately, then you can express your life however you want, right? Without a reference to God. And this obviously creates lots of problems. Um, but here's the problem with any kind of ideology, whether you subscribe to Christianity as an ideology or whether you subscribe to secularism or materialist, or materialistic approach to the world, is that it does form you, right? We, we often think, well, if I have these ideas, that's just thoughts in my head. But ultimately, those thoughts in our heads, they do shape the way we live our life. They shape our actions and our choices and those eventually become who we are and so this idea that we live in a in this culture we can we can just not worry about it it's actually forming us or i would argue it's deforming us away from who god has created us to be um and this is true of every person ever anybody that's ever lived has been formed by the culture that they find themselves in it's impossible not to we don't live in a vacuum right we we live and you know you've probably heard it often said that you're most like your five closest friends right or any things like that those studies out there show, show that we are way more influenced by our outsources our outside sources than we care to admit to the the streams that we watch on our televisions the screen time that we allow ourselves to 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 be exposed to these have a, a deep impact on who we are and who we become in our lives and so the, the question really is, how do we push back on this secular formation? Like, how do we resist uh, becoming like the rest of our culture, which is trying to remove God from it? Um, as, as often is the case, we, we have a precedent set for us in Scripture. And so if we um, kind of go backwards to go forward here on this, I think we're going to be well served. So if you have uh, Bibles or phones and you want to follow along, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, this is a story that... Um, has a lot of parallels to what's happening in our current culture. And so this is at the end of a period of time called Judges in Israel's history. So Israel is the nation that uh, God has rescued from the hand of Pharaoh out of Egypt. And he says, listen, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And they, they met. He delivered them through the, 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 the Reed Sea. You probably heard the story before, right? Moses puts up his arms and the sea opens and then crashes and kills Pharaoh and all that stuff. And then they go to Mount Sinai and they get a covenant with God. He says, here's the terms of the relationship with me. If you guys do these things, there's going to be blessings. If you don't obey these things, there's going to be cursings. And they said, okay, great. We'll, we'll follow you. You'll be our God. And so then they go all the way up to the promised land. And of course, then they send out the 12 spies. And the 12 spies say, it's awesome. But 10 of them say, but we can't do it because there's really big people in there and we can't defeat them. And so then, of course, now they've got to go in the desert for 40 years. And so they have to wait 40 more years before they get there. They finally get to the promised land 40 years later. And then Joshua now leads them into the promised land. And they all find their, their homes, they get settled, and now they're, they're uh, sort of Lord, like, like sheep without a shepherd in a sense. And so for the next 300 years or so, there's this period of called judges. And so these individual people that were sort of rise to a level of prominence that, that God would anoint to kind of lead the people. 
and the last of which his name is Samuel, hence the name of the, the, the book that we're in, for Samuel. And Samuel's at the end of his life now, and he's been a good leader, um, but he hasn't been a very good father, as we're going to find out here, unfortunately, um, because he decides to, uh, you know, he like most dads, going to pass on the family business, and they're going to kind of lead the nation of Israel. Um, but unfortunately, it, it doesn't go well. So we pick it up at the beginning of 1 Samuel 8. It says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son was named Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest prophet, took bribes, and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint the king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. And this is a, a tragic turn uh, that's about to happen in the nation of Israel, right? They're looking at Samuel and say, you're old, which is always nice to hear, right? <laughs> hey, Samuel, you're old. And uh, basically, you're not going to be around much longer. And these two sons that you put in charge, they are not at all like you, and they're not going to do a good job. And in fact, they're, they're already perverting things and, and turning things the wrong way. So um, you need to give us a king. We want to have a king. But notice their reasoning, what it says here. In verse uh, six, it said, or for, sorry, verse five, it says, "Appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. We want to be like everybody else. All these other nations around us, we want to have a king just like them." Even though we just kind of go backward in the story, and we remember that Jesus, that God from His mountain says, "Listen, you guys don't want a king. Trust me, it's not going to go well for you. I'll be your king. I'll be the one that's going to take care of you." And so, Samuel, uh, you know. It, the problem is this is not unique to Israel, right? This comparison trap. We fall into this all the time, don't we? Marketing, advertising, social media, these are trillion-dollar industries ba- based because they play on, a, on that one desire deep within us, that insatiable desire to compare ourselves against other people. Like you can't go even five minutes in most of our lives without this, this comparison creeping up into our thought patterns, you know, of what we're wearing or where we live or the things we have or we don't have or the cars we drive or the jobs we have or how our kids are behaving or the food we're eating or the place we want to go on vacation, right? It's just this constant, it just creeps in all the time of like, well, I know that they're doing this and gosh, I wish I could do it like they were. At least we have it better than they do. And then of course, marketing and advertising, social media, they just constantly keep hitting on that same pattern, that same chord within us, that, that within our heart that says, I just want to have more than what my neighbor does. I want to keep up with those and what they're doing. Right? You can imagine the amount of contentment and peace we could have in our life if we could finally overcome this comparison trap. If we could just do away with it and not worry about what, how we stand in relation to other people, just imagine the peace and the joy. There's no greater thief of contentment in our life than comparison. It steals from us all the time. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Israel made this request. We can, we can, we can shake our heads and look back and be like, gosh, they, they just missed it. But yet we fall into that same trap ourselves all the time. And we, of course, it, we're even less surprised because 400 years earlier, Moses, he, he said this very thing was going to happen. He prophesied that this very thing was about to happen. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 14. He says this, when you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, this is Moses talking to the people. This is right before they're about to go in the promised land. He says, you go in there and you're going to take possession of it, live in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. The very words that we just read in 1 Samuel, Moses said this 400 years earlier. You are to appoint over the king of, your, of the Lord your God chooses. Appoint a king from your brothers. You are not uh, to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. And so 
this is not a surprise, right? If they were, you know, paying attention to their their Bibles at the time, they would realize like, oh, we're, this was going to, this is, it was prophesied, this is going to happen. Now, Samuel, when he gets this request, going back to 1 Samuel, he hears this request from them and he doesn't he immediately like go back and be like, wait a minute, Moses said this is going to happen, we shouldn't do this. What it says is that he, uh, he thinks it's a bad idea. He considers it a bad idea. So it's like there's something in Samuel that's like, I don't think this is good. I have a, I have a bad feeling that this isn't going to go well if, I appoint, if we appoint a king over him. In verse 6, he says, When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong, so he prayed to God. He said, I don't, think, I don't have a good feeling about this, God. What do you think I should do here? Should we appoint this, this king that they're asking for? And, and God says to him, listen, this isn't a good idea. You're right. It's not a good idea, but go ahead and give them what they want. Just, just warn them and tell them what's going to happen if they appoint a king over themselves. And so that's what Samuel does. He goes on and tells them all the, here's all the things the king can do. If you guys really want a king, here's what he can do to you, right? Uh, he can take your sons and he can appoint them for use as his commanders of his army. He can use them to plow his ground and reap his harvest to make weapons for him. He can take your daughters, make them perfumers and cooks and bakers. He can take your best fields, your vineyards. He can take a tenth of all your grain. He can take your male and female servants. These are all the things that the king can do. And he goes on and on and like lists all these things. And so Sam is like, are you sure you guys want a king? Like, I know you want to be like everybody else around you, but are you sure you want? Because this is what can happen if this is, if this, if you guys go down this road. And so, of course, you know the answer what's going to happen here, right? The people, they, uh, they don't want to listen to Samuel. They've already got their minds set, their hearts set on the direction they want to go. And their response is, no, just simply no. No, we still want a king. Uh, we must have a king over us. Uh, verse 20 says, then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. It's so interesting the words they use. He'll judge us, he'll go before us, and he'll fight all our battles. This is the very thing that God said that he was going to do for his people. The very thing he said that I'll always be there for you. I'm always, I'm the, don't judge each other because I'm the one that's going to be the righteous judge. I'll go before you, I'll be behind you, I'll be all around you, he says. He says, and I'll fight your battles. Didn't I already prove that to you when I delivered you from the hand of Pharaoh and I delivered you through the sea? Like, I'll be the one to fight your battles. Matter of fact, uh, in Exodus chapter 15, the entire chapter is a song that Moses wrote saying these very things in song form. He's just saying that all the good things about God and how God went before him. And then as if to, to make it really clear, he even visibly made this practical to them because during the day when they were traveling on the desert, he was a cloud of, of, of uh, a, a pillar of cloud in front of them. And then at night, he became a pillar of fire. So they weren't even actually to move unless that pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud would, were to move in front of them. So God's actual presence was visible to them at the time. He says, look, I'll go before you. I'll fight before you. And even when Pharaoh came after them, he created this great cloud that, that Pharaoh couldn't get through and he kept him at bay. And then, you know, all it's, it, he's just saying, look, I got this. But even now we're reading in 1 Samuel 8, a few hundred years later, they said, no, no, we need a king because the king is going to be the one that's going to do that for us. The king will be the one that's going to protect us. Now, again, us moderns, we fall into the same trap. We, we think the same thing. We think kings and rulers and presidents are going to save us, right? We, we do this all the time. And you look at our current political situation. If we just had more education, right? If we, if we just had better social programs, if we just had uh, this official in office, or if we just had the right fiscal policy or a bigger military or on and on, we could just list about that. Then we'd have a good country. Then we'd have the good life that we're waiting for. We, we fall into the same trap that, that Israel faced, you know, 1,500 years ago. Now, God's gracious, and uh, he grants the request to the Israelites. 
And so he gives them Saul. And now Saul's the guy that most people, if they were choosing, would be like, yeah, Saul's the guy. He's like a, a head taller than everybody, right? He's handsome, they say. He comes from a good family, from a good tribe of Israel. He's our guy. Let's make Saul our leader. Unfortunately, um, Saul doesn't work out very well for Israel. It's a, it's a tragic story. He has all the potential in the world, but he ends up leading out of fear and control. And sadly, he leads the nation completely away from God. He built his, his entire leadership without any reference to God. And there's just so many tragic stories that we read about if we were to go through this entire book about what happens. And there's this really telling verse that just sums up all of Saul's leadership, his entire time as a king. And it comes out of 1 Chronicles. Uh, just looking back, 1 Chronicles 13, 3, it says this. This is, this is David now talking after Saul is dead. It says, let's bring back the ark of our God, for we did not inquire of him in Saul's days. In the days of Saul, what a phrase. In the days of Saul. We didn't inquire of God in the, in the days of Saul. King, was, uh, King Saul was anointed, he was crowned, and he ruled without the presence of God, of God in his midst. In fact, after they got the Ark back from the Philistines, one of their fierce rivals, it sat, the Ark of the Covenant, they got it back finally from the Philistines, but it didn't even, he didn't even bring it back into the center of, of his rule. It sat on the outskirts of the town, the outskirts of the, of the country for 20 years during his time. It just was on the fringe of the nation, just kind of out there in the outskirts. And because Saul's lack of, of desire to seek God and bring him into the midst of, of his leadership, there's and this ambivalence just grew to God. And then there was just this idea that like, we don't have to worry about God. And there was this fear-based control. And ultimately it cost Saul everything. It cost him the kingdom. It cost him his life. And it cost him the life of his sons too, because he completely rejected God and didn't seek him in his midst. Now, in contrast to Saul, one of the first things that David did, who was the one who succeeded Saul, who was chosen after Saul, the first thing he did when he came into power is he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the center of Jerusalem, the center of the nation, both politically and, and from a faith perspective. And he brought the whole attention of his entire nation back to the presence of God. He threw a big party and he's a worship session and he says, we're going to we're going to sacrifice an animal every 12 steps that we take on the way from this house all the way to Jerusalem. Now, it wasn't that far, but you can imagine that was a lot of animals that were sacrificed. It was a crazy worship service. You guys, you know, think about like an all night, like playing worship. You guys, like hands would bleed. You'd be playing so long, right? Like instruments and stuff. But there's this massive, uh, you know, attention and focus on we need to bring God's presence back into the center of what we're doing. And that's David's passion. We, we see it in his, in his Psalms that he wrote, the songs he wrote about God. And he wanted the presence of God to be with his people again. And he wanted God to be the reference point of all reality that was built around it, right? That whatever we do, we're going to build that around God. So whether it's art, economics, education, religion, family life, war, everything, God's going to be done at the center of that. It was done with explicit reference to God. Now, yes, David made some tragic mistakes. He was by no means a perfect uh, person, and he certainly made his mistakes. But he got the main thing right that Saul got wrong, and that was he put God at the center, and he constructed his reality around God. And so, in contrast to Saul, we see in the days of David that the ark was the center, that the presence of God was restored, that worship was prioritized, God was exalted. In fact, worship and prayer it rose to God 24-7 for 30 years straight under David's leadership. And this is the key lesson for all of us who live in a secular age. It's this. I only have one point today. When a godless generation builds reality without the presence of God, it's the next generation's responsibility to restore it. So whatever has happened before us, we aren't going to be held accountable for that. But 
we're, we're not living in the days of Saul. We're living in the days of David. What are we going to do? Are we going to restore the presence of God? Are we going to make him the center of everything in our reality again? When, when one generation builds reality without God, it's the next generation's responsibility to restore it. Now, the most important thing for us to do living in a secular age is not to get caught up in culture wars or heated arguments. That's not going to win anybody to Christ, and it's not going to bring about the presence of God and the kingdom of God. The most important thing we can do is build our life around his presence, to be a walking representation and reflection of God and his love to everybody around us, regardless of what they're swimming in. And we have to learn to disciple our knowledge and our attention on the reality of God in all of our lives, right? We have to be aware and almost wake up in a sense. It's to build rhythms and remembrance about who God is and what he's done. This is a key to what it means to walk in his presence. And it's also it's important that we make our faith both public and visible, not just private and devotional. Those days of just living private devotional lives in our faith are long gone if we want to see any change in the culture that we find ourselves in. The, the current of culture is way too strong for us to just have quiet time in the morning with God and that be enough. That's just not going to get it done. And so we've got to prioritize our personal time. It's important that we do that. We have to uh, build time with him and to walk daily uh, with him in our lives. We've got to build a family altar, right, in our homes where God is revered and loved and he's the center of what we're doing. And we have to keep margin in our schedule. Um, I know that I have conversations with all of you and I think one of the more common things that come up, I hear is I'm really busy. I don't have time. Right? If we want to live in a way where we respond to the presence of God and what he's doing, we have to build more margin in, which means, of course, that we have to start saying no to things. And unfortunately, that may mean we have to start saying no to each other sometimes when it comes to just being together. But there's going to always be an, an increase of demand on our time. That's not going to stop from culture. They're going to want to keep more and more of us. We're just going to have to start living in a countercultural way. We have to counterform ourselves against that. It's also important to remember and celebrate what he's done on our behalf. Really important that we do this. So, all right, what are some just practical things? What are, what are some practical things that Scripture says about seeking God? What does it mean to seek God? We can say that, but what does it actually mean? Well, a couple of things, right? Our, our Scripture that uh, Parker read for us. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face always. Psalm 105.4. Uh, I'm just going to read through some Scriptures here. Don't try and keep up, but if you want to write them down, look them up later, that's fine. Um, Psalm 63.1. This, again, comes out of the mouth of David himself. This, this is a, a picture of what, what, what this can look like in our life. Maybe you're not there yet, but this is something to work towards. Psalm 63.1 says, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. Are you that desperate for God, that even more than, a, than a, a drink of water on a hot day, that you want God, you want his presence, you want to be with him? Now, the good thing is that God is, himself is actually looking for people who are seeking after him. Psalm 14, 2 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. God's looking for people, men and women that are looking and, and, and seeking after him. The good thing is that God himself is good to those who seek him. Another promise from Scripture, from Lamentations, it says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Lamentations 3.25 in addition to that, there are blessings. There's happiness proclaimed for those who seek God. It says, happy or blessed are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. Psalm 119.2. What's also important to remember is this is not a one-time activity. This isn't like I'll schedule this on Tuesday afternoon right after my meeting with that person. This is a continual activity, an, an, an ongoing throughout life process of seeking God. It says, seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always or continually. 
First Chronicles 16, 11. Uh, God is, what's nice about when we seek him is that God's also very responsive to it. It's not like he's just going to sort of wait around and, and, and see if you do enough good things, but he's also looking to be moving on our behalf. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This comes from James chapter 4, verse 8. Of course, it does require that we actually have some genuine faith, that we have an honest desire to be with God and to seek Him uh, when, we, when we do this. Uh, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Now without faith it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those that seek Him. Right? You actually have to have a little bit of belief there. There has to be a desire. and think, I, think, I, I do believe that God's real, and if I seek Him, I will find Him. Deuteronomy 4, 9, 29 says, But from there you will search from the Lord your God, and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Is, is he that much of a priority that you're willing to put all the energy, all your thoughts, all your passion towards seeking after him? And Jeremiah 29, 13 says it likewise. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. With everything in you, if you come after me, you will find me. Jesus himself, he promises the same success. He says, look, if you uh, come after me, he says, look, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for you. Matthew 7, 7. Jesus himself says, look, you're going to find me if you genuinely and honestly seek after me. And the, and the best part about all this is that we often find, and at least I'll speak for myself, it's difficult sometimes to seek after God when I feel like the demands of life are coming at me. That I've got to take time to worry about the kids over here and my marriage over here and this church thing we're doing over here and this conflict I'm having. It's like, okay, I, God, I'll get to you when I get done with all that stuff. And Jesus so patiently and lovingly will just then remind me as he does in Matthew six thirty three, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, that stuff I just mentioned, those things on your list, those things will be added to you. Like all this stuff you're striving for and you think you have to work really hard to get, the stuff that you just, you, you're just putting me as secondary to, he's like, that stuff all comes when you seek me first in my kingdom. When you seek God and his righteousness, all those things that you think you need, he's going to add those to you as you're seeking him along the way. It's just, it's, a, it's often backwards of how our minds think about it. We think, God, I'll get to you when I have time. And God's like, no, no, if you make time for me, then I'll make sure all that other stuff happens. But we often get that backwards. Uh, there's a church in, in New York called Church of the City, New York, and they've been going through this teaching series um, on the theme of God comes where he's wanted, right? The idea that God will show up if he's wanted, like he's not going to, he's a gentleman, he's not going to like force himself on you. And, and one of the key takeaways, at least for me, as I've been with some of those messages is that uh, one of the most important prayers that we can pray in a secular age is simply welcoming the presence of God, just inviting him in to whatever moment we find ourselves in. And so when you cry out to God and you tell him, look, I want you here, then there's a spiritual reality that happens that in the midst of this secular thing that we live in, there's a spiritual reality that happens, right? We live in a time and age where this idea of the supernatural, of the spiritual seems just very like hokey and, and sort of religious and even magical and just like, it's just sort of antiquated. But yet Jesus himself was very much familiar and says, no, no, like he believed Satan was real and he believed that the spiritual world was just as real as this world that we think that we're living, this natural thing that we think we're living in. And we, we sort of try to remove that. Again, part of that secular drive is to remove the divine and transcend it. And so why not make those prayers just part of our everyday life? Why not pray, God, I want you in my heart. I want you in my dating life. I want you in my marriage. 
I want you in my family. I want you in my workplace. I want you in my neighborhood. I want you in my community. I want you in my world. That prayer that God wants to be where he's wanted. When we say, God, I want you here in the midst of what it is that I'm dealing with, that's where he wants to inhabit. And so my, uh, my encouragement for us today is that we would not, uh, we would just absolutely refuse to live in the days of Saul. That we just wouldn't allow ourselves to live uh, where God is on the outskirts of our life, like barely acknowledged and rarely sought after. But that we would resolve like David to build our lives around his presence. That we would invite him to be the center of everything that we're dealing with. That whatever struggles we have, whatever joys and triumphs we have, God, would you be in the center of this? I want you in this moment. Now, people around the world are starting to cry this out together. It's happening. We're hearing it in Iceland. We're hearing it in Indonesia. It's in Indiana, even here in Sonoma. And so with all of our teachings at Sonoma Collective, we always want to marry them and, and tie them to an actual practice, a practical way that you can start to apply this. Because this all might sound good to you. You're like, yeah, I want to do this, but how do I actually make this part of my, my rhythms and my, my daily life? And so the practice, uh, just want to encourage you to engage this one that many of us are very familiar with is called daily office. A daily office is a, is, a, is a habitual way that you can just start to stop your day and center it on God. Uh, this stems all the way back from the monastic tradition, starting about 300, 400 AD, um, when the, the culture was very similar to what it is today, a very secular culture where they were trying to drive Christ out of everything and drive the divine out of everything. And so there was a few men and women that said, I just, in order for me to actually follow Jesus well, I've got to just move away from everything. And so they went out into the deserts and they just like ran away from cities. And so they became what's now known as desert mothers and fathers. And so they'd go out into these wilderness places uh, where they were free of distraction, free of the culture around them, and they would just spend time with God. And so pretty soon people started catching wind of what was happening. And then more people started going out there to be with them. And so that's where our monastery started to form. These monasteries started to, these groups of people started to gather together. And so uh, they started to say, okay, well, now we've got some people out here. We got to figure out like how to, how to kind of redo a culture then. And so one of the things they did was they wrote out these rules of life were just like these daily rhythm practices. And one of the things they designed was their daily office. And so oftentimes five, six, seven, eight times a day, they would have regular daily office hours where they would literally stop whatever it is that they were doing and they would take that time and they would stop and they would pray and they would make God the center. And so many of these traditions, they would happen and they would happen throughout the middle of the night. So they'd have to wake up at three in the morning and make that their time to pray with God. And so I'm not asking any, any of you to get up at three in the morning unless you want to. That's totally up to you. Uh, but I would say at least twice a day, perhaps three if you can, make this a practice. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy, at least as a, a, an on-ramp to get into this practice, doing it first thing in the morning and last thing at night. Or when you wake up, the first thing you do is you just stop and say, God, I want to just make you the focus right now and just spend some time in silence and solitude and just in prayer with God and just say, God, I'm, I'm, I want you here in this moment, seeking his presence. You can do it at the end of night as well. The end of night's nice because you can even look back on the day and say, Lord, I, I, I missed you a little bit today. I was too busy, caught up. I wasn't paying attention. Can you show me where you were today? Because I was doing a lot of things, but I want to make sure I know where you were as I look back on this day. One of the nice things about looking back is it starts to strengthen your ability to start to uh, gain the foresight looking forward. So when you're in the moments moving forward, you can start to recognize his presence. But I would encourage you at least morning and night, and if you can't even middle of the day too, do it right around lunchtime. And if it helps, you know, you have these, these technological devices in your pockets, you can put on alarms on your phones, on your watches, on your calendars, just a reminder, say, okay, I'm going to stop right now. And this is going to be my daily office. That word office 
it actually comes from the word work. And so the, these these monks uh, and these nuns, as they were they were living this life in these monasteries, they said, "Look, my first work or my first office is to be with God." And so they could be in the middle of whatever it was they were doing. If they were doing, if they were cooking a meal or cleaning up, they would literally stop what they were doing and they would take that time and they would pray. That was their daily office, their daily work. Their first work was to be with God. And so for us, if we want to be a generation that lives not in the days of Saul, where we, where we seek God's presence, we bring him into the center of everything, then this is a great way to start that habit for ourselves. Start having that daily office. Start having that time where you say, okay, I'm going to stop. At this time every day, maybe it's 10 minutes to get started. Maybe it's five minutes for you to get started. But start crafting that time where you literally stop what you're doing. And what's cool about it is that eventually it's going to um, happen where you're not in private anymore. Especially if you're doing it in the middle of the day. All of a sudden you're going to you have your middle of the day daily office go off and you're going to be maybe at lunch with somebody. And so then the question is, okay, am I going to stop what I'm doing? And am I going to seek God's presence in this moment? Right? Especially if I'm with someone who perhaps doesn't know Jesus yet in this, in this situation. Right? But it's a beautiful way to, for you to start to live out that more private uh, faith, or take that private faith and make it more public. And so I want to I encourage all of us, uh, that as we think about what it means to be a people who seek God in all that we do, um, that, we wouldn't, that we would recover. We'd recover what's been lost. That we would resolve our hearts to recover what's been lost from a previous generation that's neglected. That we would resolve it in our hearts to be people who seek God. Uh, for these are the kinds of people that will punch holes through the imminent frame and allow the light of God to start shining through into the darkness. And there's darkness all around us. And so I'm going to invite you just to clench your fists and to raise your voice and invite him in. Because God is waiting to be wanted. Mm-hmm.